Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people and where every month we do a roundup with Emily Jashinsky, senior fellow, sorry, Emily, senior fellow with IWF, uh, culture editor over at the Federalist Chamber of Intrepid Journalist Minds over at Young America's Foundation. Uh, and and my final uh, description of her, her last role, tolerator of tankies over at the Hills Rising <laughs> TV. Lover, um, lover of them, appreciator of the perspective they tanky bring. Tanky appreciator. Hater of the ideology. <laughs> tanky enjoyer. Um, so we we are going to, to go through a number of subjects today, um, as we always do at the end of the month, some of the stories that we thought were important. Sometimes the stories that are undercovered, but in this case, I think stories that are not necessarily undercovered because they are in the news, but perhaps um, underanalyzed uh, in terms of the consequences. And the first thing... <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that we're going uh, to to dive into is, of course, the raid, the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. Um, unless you live under a rock, you're aware that the FBI has raided President Trump's home, that they had a quite broad warrant um, to take anything, any box with any potentially classified documents, um, the whole box and then all the adjoining boxes. Uh, so something that looks awfully like a, a fishing expedition um, in terms of, of trying to find something to charge the former president with. Um, Emily, what do you think, obviously this is, this is a huge, um, you know, it's, it breaks 240 years, six years of, of American tradition of, of not, um, you know, persecuting or prosecuting former presidents. Um, on the other hand, there, of course there is no one is, is above the law. Um, but this obviously breaks one of our, our most um, important traditions as a republic. One, I guess, what do you think the consequences long term of this are going to be, or even, let, let's say, medium term, three to five years? Um, but, the, but the second question, how should the right respond to it? Because we have, I think, we have multiple strains here of the right. Some people saying, well, we need to do the same thing. Um, that's the only way this cycle is going to end. This is folks like Josh Hammer um, and Dave Reboy, but also um, also some, some uh, not on this specific issue, and I suspect she wouldn't like her argument used this way, but Abigail Schreier uh, wrote a, a piece basically saying, we need to do unto the left as they're doing unto us, or it's never going to stop, right? Um, but, but there are obviously... There are obviously downsides to starting a tit for tat cycle of, of political prosecution. <laughs> I don't think I need to lay out what the what the downsides are, but um, where do you fall on that spectrum, or what do you think the right should do with this new and scary precedent? Well, the Schreier argument is a really interesting one to bring up because I think she was making it in the context of an issue where Republicans genuinely have not been good at using the levers available to them, as opposed to breaking any sort of like constitutional norms. She was talking about break the sort of Republican norm of standing athwart history, yelling stop without then taking action. Um, so I actually think that's a really interesting comparison and good point, because I tend to fall on the side where I totally agree with Schreier on that, but am not on the side of, I would say like a lot of, Nat cons on uh, some of these constitutional questions uh, because, you know, I, I don't like where that goes. Uh, I think we're already like careening down the slippery slope. There's no question about it. But I also think we have uh, much deeper cultural issues and they're ones government can help with and contribute to. But that's why I'm, I'm more interested in the culture space anyway, because, um, you know, it's it's the quote. What is it? The Madison quote. Um, 
about, you know, you, you need, or it's, it's John Adams, you need a moral populace basically to sustain this kind of uh, republic. And I think that's absolutely true. And uh, I think we have all of the tools to have the, the freest and fairest society that's ever existed on the face of the earth. I think we have those tools constitutionally. I think what's really the problem is uh, people and the, the culture and to have a culture where Peter Strzok is, you know, talking about the smell of Walmart and then treating the really the the candidate of Walmart. I don't mean the candidate from Walmart in a kind of idiocracy way, but like the candidate that most of the people shopping in the Virginia Walmart that so disgusted Peter Strzok, um, the candidate that they supported, he's using the levers of government in unprecedented, abnormal ways uh, that uh, it comes from basically this this place of just utter contempt and disdain for the other in a way that the left often you know said religious conservatives had for uh minorities sexual minorities etc cetera, etc cetera. um you really really see this this uh, bigotry and contempt growing uh for the other and i think charles murray saw that coming first and the only other thing i would say is how should the right address this well Ben Shapiro had a decent thread today where he said Republicans, the more Republicans talk about Trump, the less they well they do electorally. I think that's true, but I don't think it's a problem with Republicans. I think Democrats are forcing this issue. It's why they want to have January 6th hearings again in the fall. It's why they raided Mar-a-Lago in the late summer as we're heading into fall, um, because they're doing another drip, 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 a la Russia collusion um, that forces Republican candidates to talk about these issues and, and eat up time that could be spent talking about the economy, could be spent talking about gas prices, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think it's that Rep Republicans are just like super eager to talk about the FBI, um, but in, in the like in the way that Republicans should be talking about F the FBI, it should be about administrative state reform. And and as you've been out in front of of that issue, um, there are concrete policy solutions that can be giant leaps forward. And uh, that is the that's the way Republicans should be talking about this. Um, is like the, there is a policy that we can talk about that would radically change Washington, um, and it needs to be at the very, very, very top of the Republican agenda in the future. Yeah, I feel like concerns about the administrative state have really moved from being sort of a niche academic concern from, you know, Federalist Society types, right? Um, there's always been the concern about Chevron deference, about mm -hmm. um, agency size and overreach. It's never really been a popular issue, um, it, perhaps because it is so wonky and complicated. Um, but I feel like it, it really has changed. I mean, maybe the beginning of the change on this issue is Trump talking about the deep state, right? Um, but really observing how bureaucrats... Um, have behaved over the past five years and how politically weaponized these agencies are. Um, I think we're kind of seeing the end of this long, you know, more than a century arc from the progressives to now it's, it's essentially the death of the, of, of the Wilsonian idea of the, like taking like scientific management of government, right. That in fact, yes. you, you, you don't need a real politics, politics, at, at best, you need kind of a, a democracy that points the ship in, in the general direction, um, but the actual mechanisms of government uh, need to be carried out by apolitical experts. And of course, that was never true. It was certainly not true, for example, under FDR, who very aggressively politicized the, the administrative state that he had in front of him. Um, and it's, it's, it's not always been true, um, but I think we're really seeing the death of that idea. 
that it's really, really clear at this point um, that expertise, qua expertise, has a political opinion. And it's a political opinion that's being forced on um, the rest of the country. I think the pandemic is a really good example, of course, of that as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think this is a long time in coming. I'm, I'm glad to see it raise up. But I, I really do worry about the, the tit for tat on the rule of law um, side. Because, I, I, you know, it could swamp the kind of reform you're talking about. Like, it, I could see Republicans, for example, mm-hmm. looking around the target-rich environment, the Bidens and the Clintons, deciding, well, you know what? Instead of putting forward a bill to actually rein in the bureaucracy, what we're going to do is arrest Hunter, right? Yeah. And, maybe, and, and probably there's a better case for arresting Hunter in terms of the laws he's broken than arresting President Trump. But once you start that, I don't really see – I don't see how to pull out of that. No, I, I just can't fathom how that would be possible. Um, and the just staying on the Hunter hypothetical, not specific to that case, but a better case does not make a good case. Um, and that's an, a really, really, really important distinction. Just because our case is better than theirs, the conservative case is better than the liberal case for uh, you know playing fast and loose with the Constitution, it doesn't mean, of course, that it's a, a sound argument just because it's a better one. And I think there are increasingly some folks on the right who look at the Constitution as a, an imperfect document. And I know we've talked about that before, Inez. Um, I, I think there's a question as to whether it's imperfect perfect to the extent that it has allowed the vast ballooning of the administrative state, um, because frankly, that was allowed by our judiciary. Um, And it was, you know, we we found this to be over and over again. I mean, it swings back and forth, like the EPA ruling that just happened. they kicked it over to Congress. Congress passed a law, and now we'll see what happens and, and whether that's deemed constitutional when it's challenged in the courts. Um, but it's it's odd. You mentioned Wilson. Like all of this happened as industrialization um, and globalization was kicking into high gear, and all of these states were more interconnected, more easily, more quickly than ever before. And so, of course, the federal government had this impulse to seize control. Um, to the point where now the EPA can decide what kind of appliance uh, these companies can make down to granular details and in ways that have eroded their quality, frankly. And then when you make that case to the American people, I think if it's done right, I, if it's done right, not in the egghead, uh, no offense to the FedSoc, but the egghead FedSoc way, because uh, FedSoc has done great work on this. Um, but if it's done in the right way, then I think it can be really powerful. I mean, I think you run in, especially the the idea of sort of um, prosecuting, which, for example, I'm very much in favor of attempting to prosecute FBI agents or supervisors who made political decisions. Um, that, I think, is a very worthy goal for prosecution. But you're going to run into the Durham probe problem <laughs> fundamentally, right? These people's jobs require exercising judgment. They do not see that their political priors are part of the judgment they're exercising. When they take in, for example, the Steele dossier, and it sounds reasonable to them, and they don't look very hard or think about where that might have come from and the political, you know, sort of, it, it, they don't see that. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure everybody else has had the experience of, of having a conversation with someone who defends, let's say, this this kind of a technocratic neoliberal worldview, and they they think that it is the only objective. They think it's a scientific calculation. They don't see that they themselves have ideological priors, but that's really hard to prosecute. 
right? Because you have to prove not just that they made the the reasonable judgment as an like as an FBI agent, but that they they you know sort of cackled and put their fingers together and said, "Well, I'm going to use this for political reasons." Um, and and the the hard thing to recognize is that for a lot of these people, maybe there's a few cacklers, but for a lot of these people, they're not actually like going out. They think they are doing the right thing because yeah. they don't see how ideological their worldview is. Right. They're and, not taking marching orders from the DNC. It's just baked into the way that they see the world yeah. increasingly. That's hard. That's hard to, to prosecute when and you have I, you have wide latitude, for for example, for prosecutorial judgment. Right. And I, I, I mean, I guess this goes to the whole like this whole which way, which way should the right deal with this? I mean, it, it does go to that optimist pessimist divide about the country. And I guess I I for once I, I remain on the optimistic side because I have to be. I mean, is the republic completely dead, right? Is the best hope that the right has a Caesar um, who doesn't prosecute or doesn't go after us? Um, Is there there no way to actually revive some kind of, I'm not even talking about, you know, moving back within the bounds of the constitution, but um, revive some kind of, of, you know, civic bonds between Americans and and some new... uh, structures in our politics that make it so that we are not so aggressively ruled by this sort of bureaucratic class. I don't know. I mean, I I haven't totally given up that that's the case. I mean, I I think there are still some moves that we can make before the whole thing is not even worth trying to save. Yeah. And there are definite policy ways to attack that, but they're they're important in that like uh, culture is downstream of politics. I absolutely agree with that. I think the posture of Republicans is going to affect the culture. I think the policy can affect the culture. Um, but I also think, you know, the culture is really should be the the focal point, because, again, I agree with you. We have the tools. And I was thinking about exactly the, the dynamic you're laying out in the context of journalism recently. I was reading, as I always do, Barry Weiss's Substack, and just she was laying out. Uh, I think this was before she went on maternity leave laying out the incredible successes of that newsletter in terms of exposing corruption that is one of the most popular newsletters on substack and an incredible blessing of the united states of america is as much as we like to joke about state-owned media npr and, and pbs are relatively toothless compared to um, our sort of flourishing media ecosystem which is a hot mess in legacy outlets but in new media outlets really is is thriving because there was a cultural appetite for the reporting that barry put out for uh the reporting that matt taibbi is doing like there there is an audience for a lot of this stuff and i was the reason i was thinking this is because I, I really genuinely don't think that there would have been a, the conversation that we ended up having about vaccines as ridiculous as a lot of elites are still being about vaccines and masks. I feel like we would all be boosted and masked um, if we didn't have new media. And I was just thinking about that the other day. I, I continue to think that we we have tools greater than any civilization to start this process of healing and repairing and getting back to a good place um, because we can talk about these things and people want us to because people want to be healthy and flourishing um and so there is demand there i worry that we're numbing ourselves obviously with meta and everything uh meta you know tv in general netflix whatever i do worry that we're numbing ourselves but um you know no human 
wants to totally self-destruct. You know, no body wants to totally self-destruct as comfortable as it might be on a day-to-day basis. So uh, the same thing I think is intellectually true of our politics. We want to flourish. We want to be good. And because of that, I, th- I think an audience exists. And thankfully, we have the tools to talk about it. You know, we, we have the tools to have these conversations. So uh, if there's hope to be found, I think that's a big source of it. Yeah. Um I agree with that. I, I really I agree with that. I guess that's that is the the one shred of optimism that I have left. I I don't think that we've totally. Um, I don't think there's no way back. I just think we're very much close to a razor's edge where there won't be. And, and increasingly, I worry also about the the second scenario on the other side. So I worry about not in the sort of I don't, I don't like this like dumb. Sorry, that's I just think it's straight up dumb. This idea of like, oh, the threats from the left and the right are the same, and um, <laughs> I mean, one very clearly exercises an enormous amount of power. But what what I am worried about is more of the Spanish Civil War scenario, right, where you have um, you have a, a sort of ineffectual right, and eventually people get fed up with the ineffectual right because they don't because not because they're too radical, but because they aren't radical enough to actually solve the deeper problems. And eventually people do give up and they say, well, you know, I'm pushed to the wall. My family's pushed to the wall. I need somebody who's going to push back. And eventually you do end up with just, you know, the reds and the blacks and um, because, but exactly because the middle is not um, courageous enough, doesn't want to get their hands at all dirty, um, quote unquote dirty, doesn't want to use every ounce of power they have to stop the threat in this case from the left, um, you actually end up with a much more radical politics. And that's, that's, I do fear that. Um, Think about the word irredeemable. Um, We focus on deplorables a lot, but I believe she said irredeemables and deplorables and irredeemable makes people untouchable. Um, It turns them into uh, sort of cultural lepers. And when you uh, designate, when the people who are in power designate, you know, some half the country as a cultural leper, that does create incentives not to have these conversations and and not to even f- dare flirt with, uh, you know, the the question of. Uh, gosh, anything, you know, the the FBI being evil. I mean, we're so on different planets that Morning Joe had Peter Strzok on to talk about why the FBI actually has <laughs> credibility. Like, that's how different universes we're in. And the Joe Scarboroughs of the world have a, a hell of a lot more power over the FBI, which is essentially administrative agency, than voters do, because these agencies are so vast and um, indirectly downstream of elected officials at this point. They're so full of people who are very far removed from the electoral process, and that's completely intentional. And you see that in the way the left defends careers, uh, which is what you call you know, people who, who, who work long term at these agencies so breathlessly. How dare you touch these public servants um, who are unelected and disconnected from uh, the whims of voters and from the power of, of the vote? And that's how you end up in these totally different universes. Yeah, that's that's really a good example. Um, it's really a, a really good example. Uh, there, there's a great Andrew Jackson speech. Um, it's just like and as tell me yeah. you're married to like a historian without telling me you're married <laughs> to a historian. Yeah, this is definitely uh, something my husband has has taught me over the years. But um, so Andrew Jackson famously. Um, instituted rotation what he called rotation in office which i don't think by the way is a 
a bad sort of um, framing for civil service reform even today. I think it probably sounds better than civil service reform, rotation in office, right? Um, but but he he gave a speech in which he said office is considered a species of property and government rather than a means of promoting individual interest, rather as a means of promoting individual interests than as an instrument created solely for the service of a people. Um, and, and that's really what's happened. I think that does uh, blend the sort of the economic and class critique with the the, the limited government critique, right? Which is there is no rotation in office. Office is a species of property. And he was not talking about politicians. He wasn't talking about term limits on congressmen. He was talking about people who worked for the government. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, yeah, there's an interesting, um, I, I really do think in, in more ways than one, like the best parallels to, to especially in terms of solutions. Um for our moment are, are more found in the, the 19th century than in the 20th. Um, perhaps because the solutions in the 20th century weren't, weren't that great. Didn't, didn't really work, work out so well for anyone. Um, it's really interesting to go back and read, honestly, to read Marx and uh, even Nietzsche, what they were reacting to kind of reminds me they're reacting to this rapid industrialization What's happening right now is we have this rapid uh, social mediafication or rapid, I don't know, virtualization of life. So industrialization, rapid industrialization and rapid virtualization. And they're both reacting to globalism. Marx in particular was very critical of, of globalism. Um, and I think that's why you see there are similar kind of culture clashes that happened then to what's happening now. So it's true that we're in this kind of unprecedented period of 600 years, let alone 100 years, let alone 10 years. But some of the changes that were happening were happening that that were happening then were happening as fast and were as rapid and dramatic as they are now. Um, and so I don't I don't like we weathered that storm um, and it was extremely difficult, but it did happen. And uh, society weathered that storm and it was extremely difficult. We're still sort of dealing with it in many ways. But like we went on for 100 years. There was a lot of prosperity in the West. Um, there was a lot of tragedy in the West in the 20th century. There's no question about it. Um, but the world didn't implode. Um, there's general order right now. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that's not to downplay or dismiss any of the tragedy that happened in the 20th century, which was vast and, and unimaginable, largely because of technology. But um, there, there were solutions and there were periods of prosperity that came after some of these terrible things. And that folks is why you don't hang out with tankies mm. <laughs> uh, so so tanky lover emily uh speaking <laughs> of socialists who are friends of the pod um our our uh, our friend batio ungar sargon is getting absolutely uh reamed on the internet over her very statistically correct critique of the student loan bailout from the left right um so that's the other the other big news this month. Uh, we have a FBI that is prosecuting political opponents, and we have a administration that is, with the stroke of a pen, uh, conducting class warfare. Except that it it appears to be class warfare on the way down, right from from the from the top to the bottom um, through the student loan forgiveness program. Um, 
so just to, to lay out some of the basics, this is uh, $10,000 in student loan forgiveness um, for everyone who makes under $125,000 a year per person, right? So that's two fifty dollars per couple, um, which is certainly not... Uh, Certainly not uh, even considered, I would say, middle class, but upper middle class. Um, <laughs> there's 20000 there if you uh, qualify for Pell Grants, which really are low-income grants uh, to go to college. And it's just a, a proxy for, for the truly low income. So this is skewed um, intentionally so. So actually, the, the design of this bailout is considerably – it's trying to take a program or a policy that is – inherently going to benefit the upper middle class overwhelmingly and trying to sort of wrench it, wrench it through a, a series of, of qualifications towards more of the actual middle class and even the lower end of the income spectrum. It's not really succeeding in doing that, but is more in that direction than, than most of the other bailout plans. So for example, the left is now pushing for a 50,000 uh, bailout plan. This is not enough for them. So um, that would skew much, much more heavily towards, you know, doctors and lawyers. There's also, of course, this this phenomenon where oftentimes um, in the beginning of one's career after taking out a lot of loans to get a medical legal degree, um, master's, PhD, you end up having a couple years of, of in, almost intentionally low salary, right? So in, in lawyers, in the legal world, right, you go and clerk for a year or two, you're making 70, you know, 70, $75,000. But after clerking, you're going into big law where the starting salary I was recently informed, I need to update my, um, my markers on this. It's, it's actually 215. Now the starting salary is 215 um, in big law in most of these large firms. So like, there's this phenomenon of kind of temporarily poor, right? Temporarily broke yes. um, people. Uh, but but this administration, I have to I have to say this. Um, this administration has really tried in this bailout to try to like offset some of these consequences. They haven't succeeded because inherently, at the end of the day, people who have student loan debt are people who are coming overwhelmingly from the upper half of the income spectrum. Um, and that's just the the basics of this. But other bailout proposals are much more. Uh, in that direction than this one. This one is about as much as one can uh, to try to mitigate those those consequences. But in any case, there's so there's there is this bailout um, that still disproportionately benefits people in the upper half of the income spectrum and kind of screws some new groups of people, including uh, people who did not go to college, the majority of people who did not go to college, people who paid off their student loans, people who uh, made a lot of sacrifices, um, whether that's not going to school, not going to the top school, um, going to community college in order to avoid taking on a lot of this kind of debt. Um, so what what do you think um, the politics of this bailout is are actually going to look like? Because on the one hand, there's already some backlash from even within the Democratic Party, people who are in more working class districts or swing districts that are already trending Republican. Um, they are are criticizing this this plan exactly on, on the class basis. Um, on the flip side, uh, you know, it is, it is a direct benefit to people and people tend to like it when they get a check in the mail. Um, so, I mean, how, how do you think this is going to, to shake out for, for the administration? I, th I think they have no idea, no idea how badly this is going to backfire at all. I, I have, there are certain people I've heard from that I have never seen been more, be more animated about politics period. I, I mean, it's like rage, uh, unbridled rage with no ceiling. And I think reasonably so, because you have Joe Biden, who um, 
you know, somehow has amassed uh, great wealth, despite being a uh, public servant for most of his life, um, who, by the way, takes advantage of tax loopholes, just like a lot of, I shouldn't even call them loopholes, but takes advantage of, um, you know, different uh, parts of the tax code that uh, can advantage wealthy people while railing against uh, other people. So uh, other people who do the same. So I, I just, to to have exactly as you just laid out, the people who didn't go to college because it was too expensive. I mean, it's one of these things that it's very hard for political scientists to quantify. I was talking to Ryan Grimm earlier and he was like, you cannot quantify vibes basically. And politics runs on vibes. And uh, I, I don't think Democrats have any idea what they've unleashed with this. Republicans are already running ads on it. There was that interaction that Elizabeth Warren had with a dad in Iowa during the 2020 Dem primary where he just unloaded on her, um, you know, saying, how is that fair? How is that fair? And it is like there are millions of people around the country who feel the exact same way. And they're not just Republican. They're not just independent. Um, it, it, like So like, well, you're completely correct. And that is that this particular policy was engineered very specifically to mitigate um, the like class warfare element of it. There is literally no getting around the the reality um, that it's distribute it's redistribution um, and you know there, there's just no getting around it. And what's worse from a substantive perspective is that this is going to bankrupt more and more kids because it will immediately immediately have an effect on the price of college. I mean, you you follow these issues more closely than I do, but when you show that there's absolutely no incentive to lower costs because this is a big bailout um, and a subsidy to uh, higher education, of course they're just going to keep raising costs. They've seen that the government steps in and throws money at people um, who are suffering because they have never controlled the cost of higher education. They've never provided an, an incentive to control the cost of higher education. It is a system that has failed people who are um, struggling under a mountain of debt that in some cases was taken out um, you know, by their own fault and it, with really poor decision making. In other cases, was not. In other cases, it was uh, the what w people were conditioned for years and years and years to see as the ticket into the middle class. And they get out of college, and there are no jobs that require that degree that they are now in debt to have paid for. It took four years of their lives um, and pushed a bad ideology on them, but that's kind of secondary in some respects. And this is what they have to show for it, working, being underemployed. The numbers of people who are underemployed in their 20s are staggering, and underemployed being measured in whether your job requires a degree. I mean, it's just insane. So uh, the sacrifice doesn't look like just taking on debt. Or what? Like it, it looks like not going to college. It looks like going into the military. It looks like going to a less expensive school, even though you got into your dream school. Uh, it means so many different things, and so I think that was really hard to quantify. And I don't think the Biden administration has any idea. I think, like, think of this: Nina Turner, who I've interviewed, Nina Turner, and had perfectly nice interactions with her. She tweeted a laundry list of basically democratic, uh, democratic socialist, uh, like Christmas list policies. One of them was cancel rent. Like, I don't think the Biden administration has a damn clue what it's flirting with when it starts to open the door to some of these policies. Um, and I, I think the public is going to give them a wake up call on this one. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> Here's my critique, though. On the, here, here are the things I do actually agree with the left on this issue on. And I'm a, as you, you mentioned, I'm like a long-term critic of these bailouts, right? Um, very, like, 
sort of vociferous and angry critic of these yes. bailouts. Um, but I, here, here are some points that I think the left actually has it right on. One, that this is not largely a personal responsibility issue. Um, yes, there are irres- or financially irresponsible 18-year-olds. You know, guess what? 30 years ago or 40 years ago, 18-year-olds were also not very financially responsible. Right? Um, okay. I, I, so I, I don't think what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years has been that we have just a higher proportion of 18-year-olds who are wildly irresponsible. Um, I, I think what's happened, the big change is that college, that the cost of college is no longer at all tied to the value of a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the second part that I agree with the left on, frankly, is that this, this is actually the people we're talking about who are drowning under their student debt largely are the ones who did what they were told was the responsible thing. Exactly. And, and, and it wasn't just being told that it was the responsible thing in many ways because of the, the overwhelming subsidy that we are giving to this one track of life, going to college and then, you know, getting a job after college that requires a degree. We're overwhelmingly subsidizing that and we're getting more of it. So the, a lot of these kids, especially kids who do come from, um, let's say, uh, sort of working or middle class backgrounds, um, they're looking at a very unpleasant choice, like a Hobson's choice. Right. Which is on the one hand, you can go to, to university, you can take out six figures in debt um, for a job that, as you say, you will likely end up being un- underemployed. Uh, that same job might have been available at a very similar salary 15 years ago without a requirement of a degree. But the problem is now it does because we have manufactured so many people with degrees that employers now feel that they can can put they can ask for a degree, even in jobs where the salary and the skill set is not commensurate mm-hmm. with that degree. So that's one unpleasant choice. And the other unpleasant choice is you decide to forego the debt, you go at it alone, but then you aren't competing in an ever shrinking market of jobs that don't require a degree um, with people who have degrees because we've heavily subsidized them to have them. Right. And nobody is going to win in this scenario. The, the real problem is is the cost of college, which is, as you say, completely untethered from any kind of not only market forces, but any kind of sanity, yeah, because yeah. The, the government makes six figure unsecured loans available to every 18 year old who graduates from high school. And where I do agree with the left is just it's a little ridiculous to to expect to place it on the 18 year old to say, well, that 18 year old should have bucked the conventional wisdom of, of his parents and of society more generally and sort of bucked us Congress, which says, take, you know, they'll out the FAFSA, you qualify for all these loans, right? Uh, there's a reason that no bank gives an unsecured hundred thousand dollar loan to an 18 year old in any other context. There's a reason, right? We, we, we would call those predatory loans. If these yeah. were in the private market, we would call it predatory loans. And so to me, the big bad guys in all of this are, are, are the, the the universities, they're getting their money, right? They're paid in real dollars. They're, they're pretend dollars when you're an 18-year-old and you sign on the dotted line, but those are real dollars and they're going into real salaries and real paychecks for people in universities, which is why we have an explosion of the number of universities compared to other other um, like European countries and so on. We have a much, much larger university sector. We spend many, many more times the number of people to college, which by the way, this is, this is where obviously I depart strongly from the left. Like 
if you want a socialized university system, because they're always like, oh, it's free to go to university. Yeah, a very tiny percentage of people who are extremely well qualified compared to U.S. students go right. to university. It's kind of like the death panels thing, right? That Sarah Palin got, got <laughs> rationed for, right? Uh, yeah, that's a deep cut there. But Sarah Palin got reamed for saying that um, that socialized healthcare necessarily requires death panels. Well, it does. You need to control costs somehow. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of in-between system we have in the U.S. right now where there's no incentive to control costs on anybody's account. So, I mean, I I think this... The, the aspect of these bailouts that are is so unfair is who who is getting screwed in them and who is benefiting. And frankly, if we take out the people getting screwed from this and we swap in the people who benefited from it, aka the universities, and we tax endowments to pay for this, I'm fine with it. Uh, but there so needs to be some kind of consequence for this on the university side. Yeah, you can't do one without the other. Like, you just really can't. And Ryan uh, made an argument. He was, I think he was tweeting at Robbie Suave saying, that's like saying, uh, you know, saying we can't do loan forgiveness now until we fix the whole system is like saying we can't legalize marijuana now until the entire drugs situation is fixed. And regardless of what you think of the merits of that argument, I think what's important to realize is like this decision actually immediately makes the whole situation much, much worse because it uh, removes an incentive. Schools are learning that there are bailouts in the future and can thus continue to raise the cost of higher education. Um, And your distinction is a really important one, that bucking conventional wisdom. I mean, in a weird way, when you were talking, I was thinking about one of the big takeaways I've had on immigration recently, which is that there are, if you hear me out for just a moment, there are like little concession stands, food carts, like little economies built up along the routes that a lot of migrants take, like veins uh, into Mexico um, from Central America through South America, Central Central America and Mexico. And so there are these tiny little ecosystems that have become utterly dependent on this uh, basically route that people are taking because they know that they can cross the border. They're dependent on immigrants believing that they can get into the United States. And so then the incentives uh, become really, I mean, those countries, part of their economy is now dependent on all of these people, hundreds of thousands of people crossing through these different parts of Mexico every single year. Um, and in a way, if you think about college, it has become, uh, it's, it's, it is baked into the infrastructure of American life. Uh, and people who don't go to college are bucking the conventional wisdom. My high school, which was sort of halfway rural, halfway suburban, um, basically treated people like losers if they didn't go to college. The entire conditioning was that to have a, a to make a life out of yourself, everything you should you do between the time you enter kindergarten as a five year old and you leave by the time you're eighteen, is to get into college. And the implication is like, well, if I fail, what if what if I mean anyone can pretty much get into college now, but like if I don't go to college, am I a piece of garbage? Yes, <laughs> like that is literally um, the implication of the the social public government conditioning, cultural conditioning. Plus, it's how people are told that they will meet their spouses. It's how people are told they mature. It's how people are told they like this is how parents expect their children to mature and to develop professional whatever the friendships for the rest of their lives like 
this has become, I mean, asking people to give that up because they can't afford it and the government is offering them $100,000 to pursue their dreams. Um, I don't know if you remember the movie, A Cinderella Story, where she really wants to go to Princeton. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you're asking, we've, we've told people that these big schools are dreams. Like this is a fairy tale. To, it's just like insane. And we've built young people's lives in large part around it. And a lot of people don't go to college. Um, and that's still a blind spot for the left. But a lot of people do. And the people who don't are are bucking conventional wisdom, to your point. And I think that's a really, really, really important uh, point of emphasis. Yeah, it's it's it really is putting an enormous amount of pressure, both cultural and financial, especially actually exactly on the middle class, largely the working class, like it just makes up a smaller percentage of students on campus who come from working class families. than when we started this whole loan mess in the great society, in other words, the programs designed specifically to send the bright children of the working class to university have locked them out. So, so they largely, they don't benefit from this because they didn't go to college. Now, that's obviously there's lots of individual exceptions to this, but just statistically, if you look at this, the people getting squeezed the most by this Hobson's choice are the middle class, because as you say, they're the ones who know that this is the only this is this is the way to like advance uh, in, in the American dream is to send their kids to the best university they can. And those the, the, the financial requirements to do that without drowning in debt are going up every year. I think Orrin Cass has a chart with like mm -hmm. the three or four biggest pressures on middle class families. It's rent or mortgage, the cost of, of housing, the cost of health care and, and the cost of university. Right. Um, but increasingly, it's very, very difficult because we have this is a policy choice, I guess, is what I want to emphasize. It is a policy choice to so heavily subsidize this. And it has in many ways um, created a culture that makes people feel that they can't say no to it as well. well and the, um, that culture was created by a political rhetoric, by our by elite rhetoric. And they're very much to blame for creating that Obama expectation. Said, we want everyone to go to college by like 2060 or something. I can't remember what he said, but the, the goal was 100 percent college attendance. Right? Yeah. And I, God only knows what that did. And I know that this is, I'm not trying to jump the gun, but I do think this is a like kind of a bridge or it connects with something else we were planning to talk about, which is the sort of rethinking or the reconsideration of uh, sexual libertine youths. Um, like the, the ideology of a youth spent as a sexual libertine, because um, instead of, you know, aiming to get married after high school, after like as you enter adulthood, we put this buffer period, those four years of college, um, and you know, where women are supposed to discover themselves and do whatever the hell else. Um, and God only knows what that's done to our marriage rates and rates of family formation. It's a hard thing to like disentangle those variables, but surely it's a part of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to transition, so you, you did it better than I would. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, and it's not just the four-year buffer zone because the same treadmill, the same credentialing treadmill applies to higher degrees, right? So now that that the middle class is struggling to get a four-year degree, get bachelors, now the upper middle class, you know, the, the new bachelors is the master's or the PhD or the law degree or the medical degree, right? Um, and so it, it is extending that buffer period in a way that's biologically untenable for women um, in terms of, of having families, right? Uh, it, it's there. There's a limited window for for where women are able to have children, 
And now it's not just the four years. It's not like people are coming out at 22. If you are in the, the upper middle class in America, you're almost certainly going to some kind of program after that. So that's minimum, you know, if it's a master's, it's another two years. You maybe worked a year or two in between. This is a very typical track, right? Where you don't actually finish your education until you're in your late 20s. And then if you don't happen to meet someone along that way, who, by the way, can move with you because that mm -hmm. requires a lot of movement around the mm -hmm. country. Um, if you don't happen to meet somebody along the way and get lucky in that way, then you start hunting for somebody. Um, you start, you know, purposefully dating for somebody that you want to spend your life with um, in your late 20s. And that that is a that is a timeline that leaves a, a very narrow, you know, sort of track for women biologically to end up with a husband and family. It doesn't, well, doesn't, it doesn't impact men the same way. And it also, is, at 50. it's hand in glove with um, what we're talking about in terms of this idea that uh, sexual promiscuity is empowering for women because it puts them on the same plane as men that really emerged out of the logic of feminists in the 60s and 70s and has really taken hold in this fourth wave period. Although there are a number of pieces now, starting with the BuzzFeed one we talked about last year about how Gen Z is rethinking sex positivity. That was the headline. Um, and it, it goes hand in glove with that because if you have this very like rigid progression of how life is supposed to go, you are too young to get married when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Um, you have college ahead of you. You have all of these experiences after college as you're just making your own way through the world. Um, if you do that, you're filling that time in other ways and you're encouraged to fill that time in other ways. And they're not with monogamy. Um, they're with ways that have really profoundly psychologically damaged women, absolutely profoundly psychologically damaged women, physically left them um, beyond the point where they can have as many children as they want. Lyman Stone has been documenting how American women are having fewer children than they say they want. I guarantee you that's because of both the psychological damage and the the physical aspect of you know getting forming your family too late to have as many children as you want and the the lack of sort of civic society that allows women you know if you're moving around a lot childcare is more expensive harder to find because you're not next to your parents or your in-laws or your sisters or your brothers whatever it is um and and so this uh, cultural obsession with the the progression of higher education into you know the sexual libertine years of your 20s um it, i'm i'm actually really heartened by the level of reconsideration that we've seen happen quickly just in the past two years it's been okay for people to start questioning this publicly um without being called you know whatever terrible name um and i'm heartened by traditional it. horrible words like that yeah, exactly. It's like everyone who ever dared question it before was compared with Phyllis Schlafly. And by the way, first of all, I love Phyllis Schlafly. But second of all, like it was an untouchable thing. It was another cultural leper, um, you know, talking point. And so I'm actually really, really heartened. I don't know about you, but I'm really heartened by all of the reconsiderations we've seen start to it's like the floodgates are are opening. Yeah, I think one way that this sexual Cold War might at least start to thaw a little bit is is probably by people and i i'm not generally in favor of sort of this first person confessional style um but is probably people actually telling the stories of regret um 
Like, so here I'm thinking about this fantastic piece um, by our friend Brid- Bridget Bettesey, who's going to be on this pod soon to talk about this and other stuff. But, um, you know, she wrote this amazing Substack piece. It's called I Regret Being a Slut. Um, and it is so sort of honest and clear eyed and really, I, I don't use this word very often, but brave, right? Um, it, it is really brave and <laughs> in, in sort of looking back at her psychology throughout the years and looking at the consequences of it. Um, and I, I think you're right. I, I do think that there's some kind of dam breaking and people are, it's, it's now okay to talk about stories of regret. Um, but I could see this cutting one way or the other. Like I could see this being essentially a flash in the pan. Um, because the real question here is, as as millennials, as, as you've said many times, millennials are the, the first generation, not the first generation to live with the sexual revolution, but the first generation where the sexual revolution became the default. It became the mainstream. Um, and we're also the first generation to reach, well, now the older millennials are cresting 40, right? Uh, and we're on track to become the generation that is uh, has the highest proportion of unmarried and childless people um, in human history, right? And I just don't know what's going to happen when I guess the, the man of spirit also calls it the wall, but um, <laughs> it is kind of like a wall, like when that wall hits in a generational way, um, I could see it going either way. I could see it being a new uh, sort of era of, of um, you know, trying to, explain the regrets and and try to actually deter younger women, particularly from following the same path. Um, Or I could see it being the the eat, pray, love explosion where, and and I've seen this already from Hollywood, right? There was some dumb, dumb movie about, um, which I didn't watch. So maybe I shouldn't call it dumb, but it had Emma Thompson, who's a fantastic actress. Um, And it was, I can't remember. It was called like the the name of her gigolo or whatever, but it's about like a, a woman in her, you know, late sixties who hires like a, a male prostitute and it's supposed to be like the, the most, you know, intense and, and interesting period of her life or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if we'll just double down on it and we just become the boomers number two um, with our, our boomer selfishness crystallized into millennial narcissism. And we just write a bunch of, you know, whatever <laughs> modern love, New York times, you know, essays about how it's, it's actually better to, um, completely to eat, pray, love around around the world, and and to uh, live completely alone, and have no actual deep uh, attachments to other human beings, even as you get older. I don't know which way that's going to go because there's such a powerful capacity for self rationalization, right? Yeah, that's why to like this is kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's this, uh, it's it's a hedonism, um, and to the extent hedonism is about pleasure over fulfillment, or it conflates pleasure with fulfillment, um, I think it really does give way to nihilism. And I think that's where a lot of people are right now. Uh, Nick Aberstadt is out with a a new edition of his book, Men Without Work, uh, for the end of the pandemic or after the pandemic. It's basically, he's like, now it's kind of like work without men. Um, You have this army of men who are in working years that are out of the workforce and report spending 
tons and tons of time on screens. And so if it's if it's kind of easy to just get by on a little bit, um, you know, get by on, you know, these stimulus checks that you saved up or whatever money you can make from driving Uber a few days a week and, you know, you're in your parents' basement or which also I don't have a problem with people living with their parents. That's one of my uh, unpopular takes, but um, we'll have that uh, debate sometime. Yeah. I uh, I, I maintain the Anglo-American way is superior, but well, it is, it's very American and it's this like conservative scoff at people who live with their parents. And that's actually very natural and healthy. And it, I guess it depends on what your expectations are. Like you should have the dignity of work. Um, But if you have that thing already covered and you're not just leeching off your parents, it's wonderful to be close to them and to save money for a house and a family and whatever else. Okay. That's for another time. Um, Next time. Yeah. yeah, Next month we'll we'll have that debate or something. Yeah. uh, uh, Well, also, okay. I won't even get into it. Um, (laughs) But, and as, where was I going? What what was I? Sorry. I forgot my train of thought. Just, just that uh, we're all going (laughs) to die alone and, and unhappy. And and the question is, will we, will we uh, rationalize that the, next generation into following the same track out of uh, the old adage that misery loves company. Well, yeah, what I was going to say is the most, one of the most detestable truisms in politics and culture is the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. Like that is absurd. The moral arc of the universe is indeed long, but it bends towards humanity. Um, and, and humans are by nature fallen. Like we have a lot of really bad instincts. We have some great ones, like the need for, um, you know, the, the, the biological touch and attachment and community. Like these are some really good and healthy human needs. We will also pound as much junk food as we can until we get sick because there's, it gets engineered to bring us physical pleasure in the moment. And we get chemically sort of addicted to it in the same way that we get addicted to nicotine in the same way we get addicted to caffeine in the same way we get addicted to social media. So uh, the the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards humans being humans and humans um, reproduce. Humans uh, have, uh, humans are largely monogamous. Humans couple in the same types of ways. They have family. Oh, Inez is, if, if you're not watching this and you're listening to it, Inez just did a, uh, like with her hand, I'm not so sure humans are, are largely I, I would say monogamy is actually, I had this, um, this debate uh, late on a, a, a Saturday night last weekend um, with some friends, you know, whether, but no, I, I think, I think in human nature, I think human nature actually tends towards the, the harem model, right? Where like women are hypergamous and men are not monogamous and spread the, they take the, the, the shotgun approach. Right. Um, and, and women go for a uh, select sort of top men um, who are able to provide very easily for their children and have certain dominant traits. Um, what monogamy is, is a artificial con- construction of society that has built stable and lasting societies in a way that human nature does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have of course forgotten all those lessons and, and actually um, that's a, that's a good way to close with uh, the, the other aspect of what's in the news in this, this topic is of course, Andrew Tate, right? Um, Who I'm just <laughs> learning about, by the way. Yeah, I didn't, I did not know. I think it's just like shows our age too. Cause I think he's like a TikTok phenomenon yeah, I, I, as opposed to some of the other social media. I, I think if we were like 
I think if we were, uh, I, and I say this, offense intended, ignorant enough to be on TikTok, <laughs> we would probably know who Andrew Tate is because that algorithm will be would be serving us up plenty of anti-woman content. <laughs> um, which, by the way, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but Emily has a fantastic piece about TikTok and about their new election center that is essentially mainlining our elections to the CCP. One Ooh. might one might consider that potential foreign interference into elections but regrettably we are we're not not talking about it at all but um but yeah so andrew tate is is i think kind of giving giving the the pre-christian uh revolution advice which is uh and and, and i guess that's that there's a, there's a really great piece in compact magazine by louise perry who has this this new book on the sexual revolution um where i think she rightly argues now, she says that feminism is a descendant of Christianity. That may be true, may not be true. I'm not exactly well-versed enough in Christian theology to say. But um, essentially she what she points to is, 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 like, is kind of the redheaded stepchild of, of Christianity, that, that feminism couldn't arise in any other world um, than, than a certain kind of softening of, of the state of nature between men and women How that really was the invention of Christianity. It's an interesting piece. I recommend it. Um, but I think she's right to point to just like, uh, you know, Nate Hoffman, I think, is right to point to the fact that the post-religious right may be in, in many ways more um, more aggressive, more uh, sort of scary to the left uh, than, than the religious right. Um, I think that the, the sort of post-religious sexual market um, is going mm-hmm. to be even uglier than what we've seen so far. Right. Uh and and that feminist ideology isn't going to be a uh, strong enough opponent for the Andrew Tates of the world simply because women do respond to that kind of behavior. And like, you know, there you 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 can punish you can punish guys socially all you want, but at the end of the day, if, if this kind of behavior is what gets you laid, um, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna make too much headway uh, <laughs> with, what, with what your was- your reasoned arguments. What was the recent like catalyst for why Andrew Tate is in headlines right now? Like, what was it that did it? So, and that that's the other scary aspect of this, right? Is is that they just they just decided there's no like one particular thing. They just decided. I mean, he has videos about you know when to strike women, right? How to like choke them out during sex, like that kind of like very very like I mean, it, it's it's manosphere stuff, but it's also like the most extreme and and sort of um, disgusting version of it. I mean, he really seems like a creep, frankly. Um, but I, the the part of the scary thing is it doesn't seem to be any particular thing. It wasn't like this tweet or this video violates our terms of service. It was just this guy is bad in general. Let's unperson him. Um, yeah, which is kind of an end up evolution from the censorship in the past, where there's always this kind of fig leaf of, oh, you violated this term of service, even though it's enforced completely unfairly and 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 politically. Yeah, to me that gets back to what you were talking about earlier, and how it, it's this like you this this idea that like people cannot handle bad ideas that. People, the public needs to be handheld by their betters in the elite um, through the discourse. Um, the, the discourse needs to be narrowed to an extent that people can handle because people are not decent enough to look at an Andrew Tate and be like, 
bro, what the, what are you doing? Which of course they are because it's happening right now. Even if someone has a really small following on the manosphere, the left blows it wildly out of proportion um, and ends up making it bigger. It's the same thing they did with QAnon um, by blowing it wildly out of proportion. They made it bigger. They drew attention to it. They made it seem sort of untouchable and sexy in that way. And they're worsening all of the problems by doing that stuff. And your your point about Hockman's piece is so so smart, I think, because there like it is going in really into really dangerous territory. Like the it's going into um, barstool Dave Portnoy territory, sure. Um, and and Nate wrote kind of about barstool conservatism and Sagar and Jetty has done a lot of this too, and how like this is basically more of a barstool Republican party than a Trump Republican party that like the barstool demographic is the Trump demographic, but it's different than the religious right in some really interesting and important ways. And uh, I've been reading the gay science recently, which is like Nietzsche's collection of like thoughts. And um, it's, it's pretty interesting because the, the famous God is dead line from Nietzsche it wasn't as though he was declaring, and I mean, a lot of people obviously know this and people understand it, that he, he's not declaring like atheism is, like this is the moment of, of atheism. He was saying it in the context of the moment of atheism is stripping everything away. This is just over, like this is like what, 100, uh, between 100 and 150 years ago. He was like, beware what happens when, he, he's like the infrastructure of the West is Christian. And God is dead and we killed him, that means that this infrastructure is going to come crumbling down and scorched earth is going to be a new world. Like we do not have a godless infrastructure and it's about to get weird. Uh, and that's of course where the Ubermensch comes into play. And uh, that idea went in a really bad direction, obviously <laughs> uh, in the 20th century. But I feel like that's to the point about Hockman's New York Times piece, that's the left should absolutely be taking note of that. When you strip away um, the truth when you strip away truth in and of itself we are scorched earth there are no boundaries and what comes out of the reactionary side um part of that is going to be really dangerous yeah i mean andrew tate is not um one of the points louise makes uh, in in her piece is that uh, andrew tate probably would feel quite at home in ancient in, in the ancient world right um i think he knows that, that i mean i think he's kind of a loser personally like i don't think he would last very long in the ancient world um, in, in the sense that he is in the end of the day, at least from the few videos I've watched is, is pretty modern and, and soft and, and psychologically in certain ways, this is, this is, does seem like very LARPy, very like puffery yes. kind of vibe to it. So I'm not sure I agree, but like his ideas would be very much at home in the, in the ancient world. Right. So in a pre-Christian world. So uh, I guess once again, you know, the left should be careful what it wishes for. Um, I think with that, we'll probably probably wrap it up here. Um, but before I wrap up, I, I just want to direct people to um, a couple of our other IW products. We have uh, She Thinks, which is a more like policy oriented podcast with Beverly Halberg um, and, and just great policy oriented conversations with especially 
you know, politicians and um, and policy wonks. And and if you are interested in doing a deep dive into particular policy issues, I would highly recommend it. Um, there's also something called At the Bar, which is I, I actually do um, with my colleague, Jennifer Braceres of Independent Women's Law Center. Um, we talk about issues of the intersection of law, politics, and culture. We actually just interviewed Erin Murphy, who left uh, her woke law firm, who had to leave uh, with Paul Clement, her woke law firm, um, for winning. Usually, you know, law firms very happy to have a victory in the Supreme Court, except she had a victory on the Second Amendment, which is, you know, not not uh, not not doesn't make a lot of these woke law firms very happy. Um, so that that, that was a, a great conversation and recommend at the bar for for folks. Um, and with that, Emily, thank you for another great episode of High Noon After Dark. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.